A note to the hearer. Those who give careful reading to studies in the scriptures will discover the studies differ in several respects from many other religious periodicals. There is little in this publication that will appeal to the popular reader. If this magazine be read as a newspaper is read, little profit to the soul will be obtained. What we solicit from our subscribers is this. First, that before taking up any article herein, the reader will lift up his or her heart to God and earnestly ask Him for a spirit of discernment to recognize His truth and an open heart to receive it. Second, that to this end, the reader will study each article with an open Bible before him, turning to each passage quoted to see whether or not the writer proves what he says by a Thus saith the Lord. And a third, that he reads slowly, critically and thoughtfully what is presented in these pages. God has said in his word, He that believeth shall not make haste. Isaiah 28.16 And if ever there was a time when his children needed to give special heed to this admonition, it is now. The children of God are infected with the spirit of the world. The mad rush which characterizes everything around us, the awful hustle and bustle of the ungodly as they rush headlong to eternal death, has affected the members of the household of faith. And few, if any of us, are free from it. One of our most urgent needs is to be delivered from this feverish spirit, for it is rapidly sapping the spiritual vitality of many of God's people. The irreverent speed at which the Holy Scriptures are read in the average pulpit the rate at which sacred songs are commonly sung, the unholy manner in which many rush into the presence of the Most High God and gabble off the first words that come to their lips, are so many examples of this infection. And alas, the same spirit possesses most of us when we read the Word of God and expositions of that Word. We earnestly ask our readers, to make a prayerful study of the words stand, sit, wait, tarry, as they are found in Holy Writ. The title of this magazine implies that it is designed not for lazy people or for those who are so busily occupied with the things of this world that they have no time, in reality no heart, for the things of God. No, it is published for the benefit of those who are or who wish to become students of Scripture. The articles herein call for study, thoughtful perusal, prolonged meditation. Finally, let not this magazine become a substitute for your own daily study of God's Word, Rather, let it be an incentive for further search on your part to discover the priceless treasures hidden therein.
This is from the life of Arthur W. Pink by I. H. Murray, pages 23 and 24. Turning now to January 1932, Studies in the Scriptures. Search the Scriptures, John 5.39. Editor, Arthur W. Pink, 1886 to 1952. The seven studies and the contents are The Mediation of Christ, The Epistle to the Hebrews, The Life of David, The Claims of God, Unrewarded Labor, The Narrow Way, and The Ordained Lamp. Study number one, The Mediation of Christ. For there is one God, and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5. Some unregenerate men who deny the Godhead of Christ imagine they find something in this verse which supports their system of infidelity, but this only serves to make the more evident the fearful blindness of their minds. As well might they reason from Galatians 1.1, where we read, Paul, an apostle not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ, that the Lord Jesus is not man, as to infer from 1 Timothy 2.5 that he is not God. As we shall show in what follows, none could possibly heal the breach between God and men save one who partook of each of their natures. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Quoting John Owen, 1680, In that great difference between God and men, occasioned by our sin and apostasy from him, which of itself could issue in nothing but the utter ruin of the whole race of mankind, there was none in heaven or earth in their original nature and operations who was meet or able to make up a peace between them. Yet this must be done by a mediator or cease forever. This mediator could not be God himself absolutely considered, For a mediator is not of one, but God is one, Galatians 3.20. And as for creatures, there was none in heaven or earth, there was none meet to undertake this office. For if one man sin against another, the judge shall judge him. But if a man sin against the Lord, who shall entreat for him? 1 Samuel 2.25, unquote. In view of this state of things, the Eternal Son, out of love for his Father and that people which had been given to him, volunteered to enter the office and serve as mediator. It is to this that Philippians 2.7 refers, where we are told that he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. The susception taking upon him of our nature for the discharge of the mediatorial office therein, was an act of infinite condescension, wherein he is exceedingly glorious 
in the eyes of his saints. To quote again from the eminent Puritan John Owen, Such is the transcendent excellency of the divine nature. It is said of God that he dwelleth on high and humbleth himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth. Psalm 113, 5 and 6 All his respect unto creatures, the most glorious, is an act of infinite condescension. And it is so on two accounts. First, because of the infinite distance there is between his being and that of the creature. Hence all nations before him are as a drop of a bucket. Second, because of his infinite self-sufficiency unto all the acts and ends of his own eternal blessedness. What we have a desire unto is that it may add to our satisfaction, for no creature is self-sufficient unto its own blessedness. God alone wants nothing and stands in need of nothing. See Job 35, 6-8. God hath infinite perfections in himself. How glorious then is the Son of God in his susception of the office of mediator. For if such be the perfection of the divine nature, and its distance is so absolutely infinite from the whole creation, and if such be his self-sufficiency unto his own eternal blessedness, so that nothing can be taken from him, nothing added unto him, so that every regard in him unto any of his creatures is an act of self-condescension from the prerogative of his being and state. What heart can conceive, what tongue can express the glory of that condescension in the Son of God, whereby he took our nature upon him, took it to be his own in order to a discharge of the office of mediator in our behalf? Unquote. Nothing but love, love unfathomable to his Father and to his people could have moved him thereunto. When we speak of Christ as mediator, we always think of him as God and man in one person, and that his two natures, though infinitely distinct, are not to be separated. As God Without a human nature united to his divine person, he would be too high to sustain the character or to perform the work of a servant, and as such to yield to the law that obedience which was incumbent upon him as mediator. So, on the other hand, to be man or merely a creature would be too low and altogether inconsistent with that infinite value and dignity which must be put upon the work he was to perform. Therefore, none but God incarnate, possessing two natures, was qualified to act as mediator. Let us amplify this important consideration with a few details. First, it was necessary that the mediator should be a divine person, the Westminster Catechism, 1643, says, 
It was requisite that the mediator should be God, that he might sustain and keep the human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath of God and the power of death, give worth and efficacy to his sufferings, obedience and intercession, and to satisfy God's justice, procure his favor, purchase a peculiar people, give his spirit to them, conquer all their enemies, and bring them to everlasting salvation. Unquote. None but God can give eternal life, and therefore none but a divine person could be a real Savior of those who were dead in sins. John 10, 27 and 28 Herman Witsius, 1693, said, For man to glory in any one as his Savior, and give him the honor of the new creation, to resign himself to his pleasure and become his property, and say to him, Thou art Lord of my soul, is an honor to which no mere creature can have the least claim. In Jehovah shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. Isaiah 45, 25, unquote. Second, it was necessary that the mediator should be a human person. Again, quoting from the Westminster Catechism, it was requisite that the mediator should be man, that he might advance our nature, perform obedience to the law, suffer and make intercession for us in our nature, having a fellow feeling of our infirmities, that we might receive the adoption of sons and have comfort and access with boldness unto the throne of grace. Unquote. The law of God requires the love of our neighbor, but none is our neighbor, but who is of the same blood with us. Therefore, before our surety could satisfy the law for us, he must become man. So too he needed to take on him our nature in order to our being united to him in one body and be made members of his flesh and of his bones. Ephesians 5.30 Third, it was necessary that the mediator should be God and man in one person. Continuing with Westminster Catechism, it was requisite that the mediator, who was to reconcile God and man, should himself be both God and man, and this in one person, that the proper works of each nature might be accepted of God for us and relied on by us as the works of the whole person. Unquote. Had he been God only, he could not have died. Had he been man only, he could not have merited for and bestowed the Holy Spirit upon all his people. Had he not been the God-man, our redemption would have been brought about by two persons. Therefore did the eternal word become flesh. John 1.14 Forever be his name adored. Now inasmuch as the Mediator is God and man in one person, it follows that various things may be truly stated 
concerning or applied to him, which are infinitely opposite to each other, namely, that he has all power and wisdom as it concerns his deity, and yet that he is weak and finite as respects his humanity. In one nature he is equal with the Father, and so receives nothing from him, nor is under any obligation to yield obedience. In his other nature he is inferior to the Father, and so receives all things from him. Here, then, is what makes it manifest that there is no contradiction between John 10.30 and 14.28. As the second person of the Trinity, he could say, I and Father are one. As the God-man mediator, my Father is greater than I. Such verses as Matthew 11.27, 28.18, John 17.5. 1 Corinthians 15.28, Ephesians 1.22 and 23, Revelations 1.1 and so forth, all speak of him as the mediator. In seeking to make practical application of this blessed theme, we cannot do better than quote from Robert Hawker, 1825, the following words, Think of it, my brother. I entreat you upon every occasion when drawing nigh to the throne of grace through that channel by which alone you can approach the throne through the mediation of Jesus. And in that recollection, may the Lord strengthen your hands and heart. That almighty friend we now have in heaven, in whose hands all our high interests are placed, the once man of sorrows, was and is no less at the same time one with the Father over all God blessed forever. Romans 9, 5, unquote. May the Lord be pleased to add his blessing to this meditation. Arthur Pink Study number 2 The Epistle to the Hebrews Sanctification Chapter 10, verses 15 to 18. The verses which are now to be before us bring to a close the principal argument which the Apostle was setting before the Hebrews. That which follows partakes more of the nature of a series of exhortations drawn from the theses which had previously been established. The immeasurable superiority of Christianity over Judaism, seen in the glorious person of our great high priest and the perfect efficacy of his sacrifice, had been fully demonstrated. John Owen said, Here we are come unto a full end of the dogmatical part of this epistle, a portion of scripture filled with heavenly and glorious mysteries, the light of the church of the Gentiles, the glory of the people Israel, the foundation and bulwark of faith, evangelical, unquote. Immediately afterward, that eminent expositor added words which most suitably express the writer's own sentiments, the following. 
I do therefore here with all humility and sense of my own weakness and utter inability for so great a work, thankfully own the guidance and assistance which hath been given to me in the interpretation of it, so far as it is or may be of use unto the church as a mere effect of sovereign and undeserved grace. From that alone it is, that having many and many a time been at an utter loss as to the mind of the Holy Spirit, and finding no relief in the worthy labors of others, he hath graciously answered my poor, weak supplications in supplies of the light and evidence of truth. Unquote. The relation of our present passage to what has been before us in the last article is this. In verses 11 to 14, the perfection of Christ's sacrifice is declared. First, comparatively in 11 to 14, and then singly in 14, while in verses 15 to 17, a further proof or confirmation of this is given from the Old Testament Scriptures. So efficacious was the mediatorial work of Christ, that by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Said the Puritan Charlock, that one offering was of such infinite value that it perfectly purchased the taking away of sin, both in the guilt, filth, and power, and was a sufficient price for all the grace believers should need for their perfect sanctification to the end of the world. There was that satisfaction of his blood for the removal of our guilt and a treasure of merit for the supply of our grace. Unquote. There is a further link between our preceding portion and the present one. In verse 14, the apostle had declared, For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Now, he describes those marks by which the sanctified are to be identified. Unto those who really value their souls and are deeply concerned about their eternal destiny, this is a vitally important consideration. How may I know that I am one of that favored company for whom the incarnate Son of God offered himself a sacrifice for sin? What clear and conclusive evidence do I possess that I am among the sanctified? Answer to these weighty questions is furnished in the verses which we are now to ponder. May each hearer join with the writer in begging God to grant him an honest heart and a discerning eye to see whether or no they describe what has been actually made good in his own experience. Whereof the Holy Spirit also is a witness to us. For after that he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, 
There is no more offering for sin. Verses 15 to 18. There are two parts to the assertion made in verse 14. First, them that are sanctified. Second, such are perfected forever. In the proof text which the apostle here gives, both of these are found, though in the inverse order. The sanctified are they in whose hearts God puts his laws. Those who are perfected forever are they whose sins God remembers no more. Whereof the Holy Spirit also is a witness to us. Verse 15. Again quoting from John Owen. The foundation of the whole preceding discourse of the Apostle concerning the glory of the priesthood of Christ and the efficacy of his sacrifice was laid in the description of the new covenant, whereof he was the mediator, which was confirmed and ratified by his sacrifice as the old covenant was by the blood of bulls and goats. Chapter 8, verses 10 to 13. Having now abundantly proved and demonstrated what he designed concerning them, both his priesthood and his sacrifice, he gives us a confirmation of the whole from the testimony of the Holy Spirit in the description of that covenant which he had given before. And because the crisis to which he had brought his argument and disputation was that the Lord Christ, by reason of the dignity of his person and office, with the everlasting efficacy of his sacrifice, was to offer himself but once, which virtually includes all that he had before taught and declared, including in it an immediate demonstration of the insufficiency of all those sacrifices which were often repeated and consequently their removal out of the church. He returns unto those words of the Holy Spirit for the proof of this particular also. Unquote. Whereof the Holy Spirit also is a witness to us. Verse 15. Three questions are suggested by these words. First, unto what is the Holy Spirit a witness? Second, what is the also to be connected with? Who else has witnessed to the same thing? Third, how does the Holy Spirit witness? Let us then seek answers to these queries. Unto what is it that the Holy Spirit is here said to be a witness? If we go back no farther than the preceding verse, the answer would be, unto the fact that the one satisfaction which has been made by the Redeemer secures the eternal perfection of all who are sanctified. What follows in verses 16 to 18 bears this out. Nevertheless, we are persuaded that it is necessary to look farther afield if we are to obtain the deeper and fuller answer. The satisfaction made by the Redeemer was the fulfilling of the divine will, the performing of that which had been stipulated in the everlasting covenant. And it is of that the whole context is speaking. 
The Holy Spirit was present when that wondrous compact was made between the Father and the Mediator, and through Jeremiah he made known a part of its glorious promises. The proof of this will become clearer as we advance. Second, whereof the Holy Spirit also is a witness to us, looks back to verse 9. There we have the testimony of the Son unto the eternal decree which God had made, and which He had come to execute. Here in verses 17 and 18, that of the Spirit to what the Father had promised, the Mediator He would do unto His covenant people. Thus we may here behold the three persons of the Godhead concurring, yet there is such a fullness to the words of Scripture that we do not think what has just been pointed out exhausts the scope of this word also. The leading thought of the context and of the epistle is the sufficiency, finality, and efficacy of the one sacrifice of Christ. That was witnessed too when the Mediator sat down on the right hand of God, verse 12. And the Holy Spirit is also a witness to us of the same blessed fact by means of His work of sanctification in the hearts and minds of those for whom Christ died. As to how the Spirit witnesses to us, the first method is by means of the written word, specifically by what he gave out by the prophet Jeremiah. The apostle had argued the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice from its singularity, verse 12, in contrast from the many sacrifices of Judaism, verse 11, and the finality of it from the fact that he was now sat down, indicating that his work of oblation was finished. To this the Hebrews might object that what the apostle had pointed out were but plausible reasonings to which they could not acquiesce unless they were confirmed by the clear testimony of Scripture. And therefore did he now quote once more, from the memorable prophecy of Jeremiah 31, which clearly established the conclusions he had drawn. How the terms of that prophecy ratified his deductions will appear in the sequel. Whereof the Holy Spirit also is a witness to us. As we have seen, the first reference here is to what is recorded in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. The Holy Spirit is the author of the Scriptures. For the prophecy came not at any time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake, moved by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1.21 But more, the Holy Scriptures are also the testimony of the Holy Spirit because of His presence and authority in them continually. As we read the written word, we are to recognize the voice of the Spirit of truth speaking to us immediately out of them. As we do this, we shall recognize that word as the final court of appeal in all matters of conduct. 
That word alone is that whereunto our faith is to be resolved. Whereof the Holy Spirit is also a witness to us. The last two words need to be carefully observed in these days when there are so many who, under the guise of rightly dividing the word, would rob the children of God of a part of their needed bread. Let the hearer be much on his guard against such men. What the prophet Jeremiah gave out was for the people of God in his day. True, and hundreds of years later, the apostle did not hesitate to say that what Jeremiah wrote was equally to us. Note particularly, not only for us, but to us. The whole of God's word from beginning to end was written for the good of his people until the end of the world. But further, the Holy Spirit is not only a witness unto us of the everlasting covenant and of the efficacy of Christ's offering through the written word objectively, but also by his application of that word to us subjectively. As said the apostle unto the Corinthians, For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. 2 Corinthians 3, 3. A cause is known by its effects, a tree by its fruits. So the value and virtue of Christ's sacrifice are witnessed to us by the Spirit through the powerful workings of His grace on our hearts. Every grace implanted by the Spirit in the Christian soul was purchased by the obedience and blood of Christ and are living evidences of the worth of them. For after that he had said before, verse 15, the particular proof text from Jeremiah which the Apostle was about to quote is prefaced by these words of his own, as also is the clause, saith the Lord, in the next verse, the Apostle's language. If it be asked, what was it that was said before? The answer is, this is the covenant that I will make with them. If it be inquired, what is that which is said after? Even this, I will put my laws into their hearts, and so forth. The particular point to be observed is that these divine mercies of God's putting his laws into our hearts and forgiving our sins are the immediate fruits of Christ's sacrifice, but more remotely are the fulfillment of God's covenant promises unto the Mediator. The everlasting covenant which God made with Christ is the ground of all the good which he does to his people. Proof of this statement is supplied in many a scripture which is little pondered in these days. For example, in Exodus 6.5 we find Jehovah saying to Moses, I have remembered my covenant which is rendered as the reason for his bringing of Israel out of Egypt. 
Again in Psalm 105.8 we are told, He hath remembered his covenant forever. So in Ezekiel 16.60 God declares, Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with thee in the days of thy youth, and I will establish unto thee an everlasting covenant. While in Luke 1 we read, in the prophecy of Zacharias, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Verses 68 to 72. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. Verse 16. The reference is to the new covenant of Jeremiah 31.31, so called, not because it was new made, for with respect to its original constitution, it was made with the elect in Christ their head from all eternity, Titus 1.2, nor as newly revealed, for it was made known in measure to the Old Testament saints but it is so referred to in distinction from the former administration of it, which had to waxen old and vanished away. It is also called new because of the new heart, new spirit, new song, which it bestows, and because of new ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, which have displaced the old ones of circumcision and the Passover supper. Further, it may suitably be designated as new, because its vigor and efficacy are perpetual. It will never be antiquated or give place to another. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. Verse 16. And who are the favored ones in whom God works thus? Those whom he eternally set apart, Ephesians 1.4. Those whom he gave to the Mediator, John 17.6. Those for whom Christ died, whom he did predestinate, those he also called, Romans 8.30. These and these only are the ones with whom God deals so graciously. Others may, through religious instruction or personal effort, acquire a theoretical acquaintance with the laws of God, but only His elect have a vital knowledge of Him. I will put my laws into their hearts. As we deem this expression of tremendous importance, we will endeavor to explain it according to the measure of light which God has granted us thereon. First, it will aid us to an understanding thereof if we consider the case of Adam. When he left the Creator's hands, the law of God was in his heart, or, in other words, he was endowed with all sorts of holy properties, 
instincts and inclinations unto whatsoever God did command, and an antipathy against all he forbade. That was the law of the nature of his heart. The laws of God in Adam were Adam's original nature or constitution of his spirit and soul, as it is the law of nature in beasts to love their young and of birds to build their nest. Thomas Goodwin said, When God created man at first, he gave him not an outward law written in letters or delivered in words, but an inward law put into his heart and concreated with him and wrought in the frame of his soul, and the whole substance of this law of God, the mass of it, was not merely dictates or beams of light in his understanding, directing what to do, but also real, lively and spiritual dispositions and inclinations in his will and affections, carrying him on to what was so directed as to pray, love God and fear him, to seek his glory in a spiritual and holy manner. They were inward abilities suited to every duty. Unquote. The external command of Genesis 2.17 was designed as the test of his responsibility. What God had graciously placed within him was the equipment for the discharging of his responsibility. Should it be inquired, where is the scripture which teaches that God placed his laws in the heart of unfallen Adam? It is sufficient to reply that Psalm 40, verse 8, presents Christ as saying, Thy law is written within my heart. And Romans 5.14 declares that Adam was the figure of him that was to come. But more, just as we may discover what grain the earth bears by the stubble which is found in the field, so we may ascertain what was in unfallen man by the ruins of what is yet to be seen in fallen and corrupt humanity. Romans 2.14 says, The Gentiles do by nature the things contained in the law. Their very conscience tells them that immorality and murder are crimes. Thus, as an evidence that the law of God was originally the very nature of Adam, we have the shadow of it in the hearts of all men. Alas, Adam did not continue as God created him. He fell, and the consequence was that his heart was corrupted, his very nature vitiated, so that the things he once loved he now hated, and what he should have hated he now served. Thus it is with all of his fallen descendants, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Ephesians 4.18 Their carnal mind is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Romans 8.7 Instead of that holy nature or spiritual propensities and properties 
Man is now indwelt and dominated by sin. Hence Romans 7.23 teaches us that sin is a law in our members, namely the law of sin and death, Romans 8.2. And thus it is that in Jeremiah 17.1, as the opposite of Hebrews 10.16, sin and corruption in the heart is said to be written with a pen of iron, with the point of a diamond. Now in regeneration and sanctification, the image of God after which Adam was originally created is again stamped upon the soul. See Colossians 3.10 The laws of God are written on the Christian's heart so that it becomes his very nature to serve, obey, please, honor, and glorify God. Because the law of God is renewed again in the soul, it is termed the law of the mind, Romans 7.23. For the mind is now regulated by the authority of God and turns as instinctively to Him as does the sunflower to the sun and as the needle answers to the lodestone. Thus the renewed heart delights in the law of God, Romans 7.22, and serves the law of God, Romans 7.25, it being its very nature so to do. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue Edmonton that's E D M O N T O N Alberta abbreviated capital A capital B Canada T six L three T five you may also request a free printed catalog and remember that John Calvin in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, 
as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.